0: Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Networks podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for all citizens. This podcast was brought to you by the Alabama Science of Reading Group on Facebook. With free professional learning and a community dedicated to improving reading, it's no wonder that so many people are part of this. If you aren't a member already, join for free online. I'm your host, Shelley Bell Smith. Today, we will be talking to the fabulous Dr. Laura Fibash, who is my personal friend In 1990, Dr. Five Ash earned an undergraduate degree at Meredith College in Raleigh, North Carolina, with a major in nutrition and minors in biology and fitness. She completed a year-long dietetic internship in Augusta, Georgia, and in 1998, she obtained a Master's of Public Health from the University of Michigan. Five years later, she completed her doctorate in public health and maternal and child health at UAB. Her coursework included special education programs and policies, public health law, statistics, quality of life measurements, and an economic analysis fellowship. During her graduate program, she conducted research and taught graduate-level classes. She completed a postdoctoral traineeship in clinical trials and epidemiology in 2005. She has served as an advocate for children covered under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act for over 13 years. In addition, she has written over 50 grants and edited over 1,000 articles. In 2015, she was asked to serve as the interim executive director of Spring Valley School, a private and independent school serving students in grades 1 through 12 with learning differences such as dyslexia, dysgraphia, and ADHD. The following October, the Spring Valley School Board of Directors named Dr. Five Ash the permanent director. During her tenure at Spring Valley, she moved to a new location and the student enrollment more than doubled. Currently, she serves on the Alabama Committee on Grade Level reach She is now completing a school management and leadership certificate from Harvard University. She is married to Dr. John 5 Ash, a UAB comprehensive cancer center physician who treats pediatric and adult brain tumors. Together, they have 21-year-old triplets, all of which have wonderful Varying abilities. Welcome, Laura. I am thank so you. excited to have you as a guest on the podcast. You and I met
1: an honor. You're... Please hear that. So thank you. You're such a great, incredible educator and human being. So please know that I'm honored to be here.
0: Well, you and I just met years ago, and every time I talk to you, I find out you're just doing something even more marvelous. So yeah. I'm so thank excited you. that you are going to share. Some of that with us today. Currently, you're the head of school for Spring Valley School, which is an independent private school for students with learning differences in Birmingham, Alabama. I know your background is not education, was reading that biography, and it just really reminded me, I think perhaps why I find you so refreshing is that you came to education in such a different way. What can you tell everyone about how you ended up running the school?
1: Well, first and foremost, I'm humbled and honored every day to be able to walk into this incredible community and serve kids that I feel like certainly need explicit, comprehensive instruction in not just academics, but social, emotional and executive functioning and daily life. And so honored in the fact that I get to not only interact with the parents and the students, but also our un- incredible faculty. And when I came in, I said, okay, I'm not going to know everything about curriculum and I'm not going to know everything about Textbooks, or I'm not going to know everything about um, designing an incredible reading lesson, but I'm going to find the absolute best that I can find. And I'm very honored that those faculty and teachers and leaders all choose to work at Spring Valley. So I surround myself with excellent people.
0: Yes. And so anyone who was listening to that biography probably picked up on you really seeing like the whole child. You know, you have like a lot of this different background with uh, diet and nutrition and and all. So I I just always think that that was the perfect background to get
1: you ready for this position. That's very nice. And thank you again. I, there's many days I think I don't know anything about that, but I'm going to find somebody in a I'm going to read about it and find out what I, so again, I'm continuously learning and I'm honored that I have such a great board that believes in the work that we do here and is that supportive. Um, and so again, thank you very much for your kind words.
0: So tell us about the types of students who attend school at Spring Valley and how do the programs you provide help?
1: So I think it's very interesting. I just got back this summer for, uh, from a research from the Dyslexia Foundation research meeting. In, during that meeting, I learned some really neat. Interesting statistics that, um, again, just came out. As we know, you know, through in public education, there's about 13% of all students have an LD. Okay. And so they don't necessarily break that LD down into reading, writing, or math, which is the three major learning disabilities. But of students that have dyslexia, so again, and there's all different types of statistics that you and I know out there, but about half of them have a math diagnosis of an LD and a writing diagnosis. And so just imagine that if we took 50% of all kids with dyslexia, we know that half of them are going to have struggle on math and half of them are going to struggle on writing. And then how many of those struggle with all three? And so I think the unique thing about Spring Valley is that we really try to explicitly teach every single academic subject. And just like a typical school would teach, we have a great science or um, reading program. We use the Nye House program, basic language skills. Again, uh, we have 13 people that are trained in that area, but then also math. And you and I know that's a hot subject. And we really are working on curriculum f- just for students with Uh, learning disabilities. And then the writing piece is another whole area that which we explicitly teach. And obviously then carrying those things over into other subjects like science and history, social studies. And so again, the vocabulary piece is a big deal, especially among our students with dyslexia and how we teach the vocabulary and being explicit in that vocabulary. And then we talk about health, exactly as you said earlier, and we're really kicking off a wellness program this year at Spring Valley, looking at the whole child. So again, we have lots of data support that kids have struggled through the pandemic and not just students, but also faculty. And so explicitly teaching skills and PE and, and skills, health skills and wellness skills and safety skills and internet skills and how to make better choices and how to plan for homework and not waiting until the night before that a project's due. So those are all, I think, encompassing really helping our kids hopefully be better managers Of their life, both academically, personally, socially, emotionally.
0: Yeah, that's just so easy. I mean, that's just you (laughs) describe like this monumental, huge task to do that. So yay for Spring Valley School for for doing it and for caring enough to work on so many of these really difficult problems.
1: Well, I think the sure? one thing is that, you know, we really strive at Spring Valley to not just serve kids that can afford, but we do have a huge fundraising effort every year to try to serve kids that can't afford to come. And we are, I'm proud to say that we are able to serve about 20 kids out of 137 that are, you know, 185% of the federal poverty level. So again, being able to provide that education and you and I know that's just a small number, but hopefully that we're helping those students change the ongoing poverty cycle. Again, we know that learning disabilities are a lot of times genetically based. And again, when we look at the prison system in Alabama, we have so many people that have been diagnosed with learning disabilities and trying to stop that ongoing cycle to prison is very important. Um, I am very, honored and thankful again that being a private school, we have a little bit more leeway on class sizes. So we only have six to 10 in a classroom. So lower school has very small classes, middle and upper have no more than 10. Uh, We have the ability to have social workers. So in addition to like a college and career counselor that we have, we have two full-time social workers that really look at the social emotional learning of our students. So that makes it very nice.
0: I'm, there. I'm sure some teachers who are listening to this are thinking, wow, what I could do if I had six to 10 students mm-hmm. in my classroom instead of...
1: You are absolutely correct. And I'm very grateful. And so, again, I wish that all education here that we had the ability to do that.
0: Absolutely. So one of my questions was going to be, how many students are you serving? And You said about 137. So I'm guessing that the need for this type of education far exceeds your ability to serve students. How many students do you think need these types of services?
1: So if we looked at the 13% of the current enrollment have an LD. And again, it's not to say that public schools can't serve them. And I think they'd certainly try very, very hard and to try to serve those kids. I think there's some kids that really thrive though in a smaller environment. And so again, when you look at other cities the size of Birmingham that have similar schools like this some of you know many of them have enrollments That are in the four and five hundreds of our side or our type of school. For instance, Atlanta has maybe six or seven types of schools like this. Many of them are even much larger than Spring Valley. They probably even have 10, I suspect now. But again, in central Alabama, we are the only school that serves kids with specifically with LD. Now there's other certainly special niche schools, and I want to make sure I honor and recognize recognize them because they do great work too. Um, But again, part of the mission is to serve kids with learning differences, but also recognizing that if you get outside that mission, which it would be very easy to do because you and I know there's so much need that we don't then I feel like we're not very good at what we're doing. And so every single student at Spring Valley has to have an LD diagnosis. Now, in addition, you and I know from current statistics that there's a lot of kids that have ADHD or that have anxiety. There are a couple that have ASD or autism spectrum, but we're not an autism school. We don't have the behavior supports for you know, students that may need additional help, we don't have aid support. We do have a speech language pathologist again, but we don't have an OT. We don't have PT. So again, really looking at those learning differences.
0: Absolutely. You know, I think we've made some pretty big gains in awareness in the last ten years in the area of serving students with dyslexia and other learning differences. What are your thoughts on where we are now and what else needs to happen?
1: Well, first and foremost, you are one of the leaders in that area, so I want to make sure that you are recognized. I mean that um, you've spent a lot of time in that area. And certainly there's so many others in our state and nation that have continued and and work every day on making awareness greater and uh, how we improve education. And certainly I think we've made great strides in in the state of Alabama as far as the ways that we address it. I think the one thing, and I really haven't teased this out yet, in the general education population, I think we've done a pretty good job of, you know, really trying to make sure we have people that are trained in the area of science of reading. I think the one thing, um, again, how we measure fidelity in the classroom is an area that I'm not really sure it's hard for me, even with 13 reading specialists that are highly trained. And so I can't imagine having a thousand or 2000. And so I think that is an area of for gross opportunity. Uh, the other thing is how do we help kids that are not in general ed, but they're actually in special ed. And, and we know that this type of, ex, you know, explicit, comprehensive, uh, systematic education of, you know, science of reading is really good for them and how are they getting that type of education rather than just going to a resource room and getting accommodations? Not to say that they don't need those. But, I, you know, I really would like to see what that looks like in schools and how we're able to make sure that our teachers have the supports that they need to be able to do that.
0: Yes, because I continue to think all of our students are in that tier one instruction. And if we could improve that, how much better everyone would be, including our students who are served in special education. And if we could just move that, we could just make a giant wish list of things that we want to have. Yeah. And I
1: agree with you. I totally agree. You know, if you have it in the regular general ed classroom, I do think though, again, as you and I know, some of these kids need additional instruction or additional, you know, many more minutes than they're given in the regular classroom. And I think some of that occurs. I just, uh, you know, again, I'm not exactly sure how to make it happen.
0: Yeah. There's so many things that we need to be doing for reading. And then uh, when we look at math scores, it's really mind blowing that we can have such low scores in math. And of course, I think in Alabama, we've just passed the new Mercy Act, you know, and so we're kind of gearing up to address math in some of the ways that we've addressed reading, you know, really looking at what Spring Valley has started doing and I've been doing it for a while, but you're working on research on how best to teach students, specifically in the area of math. What can you tell us about this work and What are the implications for helping students regardless of where they go to school?
1: So one major thing that we're really working on this year is um, our Dean of Academics, Laura Griffin, is working, is dedicating part of her entire day, every day, to developing an LD curriculum. And so she is working with Dr. Rickamini, Paul Rickamini out of Penn State. She's evaluating the research and Jennings Miller, who is actually an OG fellow from Atlanta, has done a lot of research and teaching in what she considers OG methodologies of teaching math. So she takes OG methods and then applies them to math. And she was actually the person that first trained our teachers eight years ago or seven years ago at Spring Valley. And we've continued to utilize her when we have new teachers come in. So that's a great teaching model for lower school. But again, we know that curriculum, and Dr. Riccimini and I just actually had a a discussion about this earlier today, about the fact that we don't have a curriculum that is available specifically for LD kids. What does that mean? That means you and I know the language of math, the vocabulary of math is so complex and I share this a lot of times with parents that come in an in interview and I talk about, just think about our number, this, the, the the words that we've assigned to our numbers in the English language, like 13. Okay. It doesn't really make any sense. You and I know what that means because we've been taught for so long, but it should really be one ten and three ones. And so if we named our numbers the way that they actually are, how much quicker we could do math. And so very early on in at Spring Valley in first grade, we start working on numeracy. We start working on number lines that you start counting at one, but really you can start counting at negative one. They walk on a number line. So they really understand positive and negative. They understand place value again. And so those core, what I consider concepts are taught very early and they start to see math. So we use manipulatives. They're all the same. And, and we take that and then be able to see that, wow, three times three times three, which is three cubed. If you build it, it actually looks like a cube. That's where we get the word cube from. And so, you know, we use the Freire model, again, so that we look at vocabulary, we look at quotient. What does quotient mean? So that kids understand, well, no, it does not mean this for sure, and this is what it looks like when when you're talking about a quotient. And so, th- taking all of those types of concepts and then putting them into a curriculum, using the research again from Rick Amini, which you and I spoke about earlier, about. Um, Slot, which is again, you know, space time, how long every six weeks it repeat a concept, even if it's 15 minutes of that period, which you and I know there's so much to teach, anyways. But really taking those core concepts that we know are vital to math and being able to do math long term. Like for instance, in geometry, and this is nothing against geometry. I love geometry, but if you've looked at the geometry curriculum, we're learning things like the hinge theorem. Not that I don't like the hinge theorem, but how much. You're going to use the hinge theorem as an adult, and trying to say to ourselves what is vital for our children to be successful in mathematics. Now, if they, again they want to major in mathematics, then great, ha- let them learn about all the different proofs and, and theorems and, and geometry. But I think we've, and the other thing we really are focusing on at Spring Valley is teaching statistics. Why? Because again, CDC just came out with this whole recommendation on numeracy, and that we all know uh, coming out of a pandemic that people really struggle to understand statistics, be able to teach and understand when we look at a, a medical article or any kind of article, and what is the percentage and what is fractions. And we have kids that still struggle with that. So we spent a lot of time, what I feel like are on really vital math skills. And so Laura's whole entire mission this year is to take that and then put it into curriculum. And I think the one thing I want people to hear is it's not about, you know, people like, oh, you're going to sell that. Well, certainly we're going to, we will probably charge some nominal fee, but that's not the goal. The goal is to hopefully provide curriculum to other schools in the nation that are also struggling to hopefully make education better.
0: Yes. And Number one, I know that everything that you take in at that school is then turned around and used for students. So any any profit that you would make, which I'm sure would be small anyway, but it would just go for for helping more students. And so, but the absence of that kind of curriculum, you're right, is such a hole. And so, oftentimes our students who have an IEP are sent to a resource room and what they're really doing is just a rehash of what they didn't learn in the regular classroom. And it really never addresses the the really root of the problem. And so
1: uh, or they're put on a computer program and I'm not being derogatory because again, we know we have a huge teacher shortage. And so what are you going to do or Khan Academy? I'm not, please hear that. I think everyone's doing the best they can, but I think if we have something to be able to say, Hey, we know, again, and, and I want people to hear, it's not like I'm just going to develop it and we're just going to say, here it is. We're going to test it. We already have our teachers testing some of the areas. We have Dr. Riccamini looking at it, other math experts in the field. What do you think? What do we need to change? It's not going to be perfect. And, and again, but being able to have something out there that we're able to continuously update and be able to say, hey, this is a starting point.
0: And, and I think you and I have been talking lately about just the language. The use of language when we're teaching. And I know just even in this last year, I've learned so much about how we teach students, all students, but especially students with a language difference or multilinguals. And so or dialect,
1: Washington, Julie, Washington has done a huge amount of work on, on dialect. And I didn't really understand or respect that either. And so, again, when we're teaching like reading intervention, what is dialect? And and then I'll, I'll throw, also throw in a whole different you know, language.
0: Mm hmm. Absolutely. So, no, I I do not mean to be derogatory to anyone. It's just I think our teachers understand for the most part that they're doing the best they can, but it's still not what they want for students because our teachers want students to to learn and succeed. Because that's the whole reason that they took jobs that paid not nearly enough and, you know, work them way more than than they should. Right. Yes, absolutely. One of the things that you've helped me with is to connect with this larger community of people around the country working on these issues. And I think that there's so much work being done that we don't know about. How can people connect to these groups and the work that can help them reach students at their school?
1: That's a great question. I'm, again, very honored to be a part of what we call, there's a large head of school consortium of schools that serve students like the students that we serve at Spring Valley that have learning differences, Uh, Again, there are schools and there are comprehensive lists. Some of them you have to pay to be on. So for instance, Spring Valley may not be on it just because again, I don't choose to pay to be on it. But I think if you live in a state and you want to learn more, so for instance, um, you got to meet some of my dear friends at AIM Institute and AIM Academy in Philadelphia and right outside of Philadelphia. And so they're doing some incredible research there. There's people on the West Coast. I mean, every single state has a school typically like this. And so Mississippi has a 3D school. Atlanta, as I said, has many schools. We're actually at Spring Valley taking an entire day, September the 30th. And we've been invited to go up and see Curry Ingram, which is in Brentwood, Tennessee. And they are hosting all of our faculty and board to go up there and look and see what the wonderful things that they're doing. There are about 400 students. Again, they're boarding in a day school. And so all of us ongoing, continuously looking at things, and is this the best way we need to be doing it? And it's time consuming and it's hard, but I think recognizing that it took, and you and I talked about this earlier, it took how many years, 22 years, to look at the white paper that was produced in 1999 on the science of reading to be able to get it into place and really embrace that. And I think my goal is to be able to move that much quicker. And so we are lucky in the fact that we have hired actually a a director of research, Dr. Uh, Kevin Campbell, who has got a doctorate in math, but is interested in all areas, academic areas, and specifically how we serve kids with LD. We have, um, again, been very honored to be able to work with some outstanding researchers in the country that are really interested in moving that research to practice. Again, I think we have lots of researchers that sometimes produce research, but then we don't know how to make it practical enough to use in the classroom. And so hopefully my goal is to be able to say, so this is what we've been able to utilize and do. And so hopefully then you can replicate that in other schools.
0: Yes. Wow. There was so much that you just said. You know, I do think that there is so much of this work being done and a lot of people perhaps don't realize that it is out there, that it is being done. And so I think once you start digging, you start seeing how much is out there And then I think just the other thing that really struck me about what you said was this whole research practice, and we were talking about this before we started recording, is there's so much research out there on what works, but then getting it in the hands of the people who need it in a way that doesn't overburden them when they're already stressed out and overworked you know, uh, I think that that is, you know, such a huge area of work, you know, just the translation of of the science into things that people can implement in classrooms.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, again, you know, the one thing I want to make sure people hear is that this is teachers are doing the absolute best they can. And I think sometimes as parents, and I can remember before I became a head of school, that you'd get frustrated with a, with a teacher. Okay. And so I think recognizing, though, that every day that teachers dealing typically with at least 30 kids and sometimes if you're in you know middle and upper school you may have 180 or 200 kids and so and then you're exhausted with trying to keep up with grading gosh if you have somebody that, that has an IEP or that has another need or that isn't getting it and trying to reteach that and then are you going to go home and say okay i'm going to go read a research article and then i'm try to decipher how i'm going to put that into place in addition to doing lesson plans i mean there's just no way to keep up with it all
0: yeah and i was just thinking and bus duty and all oh. the other million things that are oh yeah to- and, and,
1: and you know cheer team or whatever other extracurricular you've got to be in charge of so mm-hmm. i i 100% hats off above all to every teacher
0: Absolutely. And of course, I taught high school. And so I was teaching those massive numbers of students every day and and really had no idea at that point in my career how many of these students were sitting in my class that what I was doing was not being effective for. And so, oh, to have all of them back again, I would I would try to do so much better.
1: Well I mean and again, but you don't know you know what I'm saying so I think that's part of it and and recognize the fact that we you know we have four years to educate teachers right in an undergraduate program and, and you and I know there's so much information to know and we have such a shortage and so are we going to increase that program no you know again but I think it's it's a very complex issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, science of reading, you and I know, you and I have taken courses. We know it's very challenging to teach it, to be able to understand it enough to teach it. It is literally like, you know, rocket science and everybody, you know, that's the the cliche, but it is that hard. It's not easy.
0: No, it is so not easy. And you and I have actually spoken on lots of occasions about the training needed for teachers to be effective teachers of reading. So what have you learned from working through this process of learning and improving with teachers?
1: I think the one thing that I spend a lot of time, and we certainly spend a lot of time on professional development, which again, we have the ability and, and resources to be able to do that. I think giving teachers the space, and we actually have a new um, professional learning teacher that's taken that over, Liz Smith, and, and she has a, you know, she's working, getting ready to work on her doctorate, she's got a lot of training and education. And so I came to her and I said, hey, I really want us to make this meaningful. Okay, so we can just dish out PD, which we do a lot of times as heads of school and leaders, right? And We do that certainly with our reading intervention program. That's 180 hours of of classroom time and then a thousand hours of practicum. And so again, but I really want people to start thinking, and this is what I do as a head, what's going to make me a better human being? Right. Not just a better leader, but a better mom, a better, you know, co-worker, a better um, parent, a better um, mentor to other to other heads. And I think the one thing that I have found is I try to set out every day or every summer, for instance, I think of what what am, what am I going to read or listen to or watch that's going to help me be that much better this year. And I really encourage our teachers to do that. But you got to give them the space to do it. So again, it's a time and energy process. Um, Certainly, uh, you know, again, we have a reading intervention program that we use. And so that's, you know, somewhat people go through the entire program. It takes four or five years. You've got to be dedicated because you've got to write book reports. There's a whole bunch of outside stuff, but giving people the time. And I will tell you, quite frankly, when I became head of school, we didn't have a whole bunch of resources. And so people were working, you know, 60 hours a week, and you burn people out. And I've had to learn the hard way. You can't do that. This past year was the first year that our lower school teachers had more than one planning. And they were still trying to do all this reading intervention. That's on me. You know what I'm saying? And I feel bad about that. Like, just like you said, gosh, if I could go back and change it, I wish I could. It is what it is. I I apologize. I try to make it better when we have more resources. But I think you know, owning that, um, right? And you know, we do a lot of Brene Brown at our our school, again, being vulnerable, telling the story that you you think that that you know, that I'm telling myself, is that really actually a story? I think we're all human and we're all trying to do, especially coming out of a pandemic.
0: Yes, no one had any idea when we went into that, the long-term impact. And I still don't think that we have seen that. And just looking at test scores coming back from this past spring, I'm just struck at, the overwhelming nature of of moving the needle. Yeah. And I presented this summer in Alabama talking about you know working smarter, not harder because you know I I believe our teachers are working as hard as they possibly can, which is leading you know to burnout and all these other I things know. and so I, we can't work any harder, so we've got to work smarter. And so part of the reason I do this is I hope that in some small way, it it leads someone to something that makes their life a little easier or, or more effective. Of
1: course, of course it does. That's what you've always done.
0: I know that you are the lead learner in this school and that whatever your teachers are learning, you're right beside them learning mm-hmm. and supporting them. What's changed the most in terms of your knowledge and practice and how has it changed how you lead this school?
1: I think the one thing, as I said a minute ago, is giving the time and the space for that. OK, so again, you can't, you know, and during COVID, I will tell you, in the very first year when we went back, we didn't have any PD in person. And so there were times in which we'd say, OK, so you have this day and you've got to give me an idea. These are the options that you can choose from. And I found in that, even though I really wanted people to go do that, people just needed a space to breathe. Okay, And that was a new concept for me. And so as we're moving out of that, again, really trying to get people to get back into, I want you to write intentional goals, not for me, but for you professionally and what they're going to look like and what do you need from me to make those happen this year and what is done look like. Okay, So for each one of those goals, so every one of my faculty write three goals. Some of that may be professional development. How are they going to get that professional development? What does that look like? Um, the one thing that we kept hearing about, as I, as I told you earlier, is that we're going up to, this, to see this school in Tennessee. And again, that's, again, it's going to be quite a day. We're going to cancel school. But people wanted to see what other how other people were actually teaching in other LD schools. And I think, again, you know, there's researchers out there that will actually come to your school, like Rick Amini will come, and he'll sit in a class, and he'll give that faculty member, and this is not to be derogatory or to be negative, but growth opportunities and then things that they're doing really well. And so that we have, you know, again, people in the classroom that are really well-skilled in these areas so that that teacher can learn. And so, again, you're not going to be able to always go to a different school, but I think having people in that are really well-trained in those areas and being able to say, not being critical, again, we don't need any more of that, but being able to say, this is a growth opportunity for you. I think this is a great way for you to learn. And this is my knowledge of of the area. Um, That's been one of the biggest things for us if we're able to bring in what I consider incredible. And it's not always just researchers. The neat thing about some of the people that we bring in is that they were teachers before they were researchers. And so they really get what it's like to manage classroom. And so I think that for me has been the most, but I think really being able to say, am I asking people to do too much? And I will tell you when I first got here, I asked people to do too much. I
0: imagine that there are many, many places that are asking people to do too much. So I love the idea of the space and time to do one thing well. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to hold on to that. And I also love the idea of just visiting places. I will say as a, a school principal, that was something that my teachers just thrived on doing because it taught them something new. And sometimes it just affirmed what they were doing was was right. And, and so... I think that that is something that it doesn't cost a lot of money. I would encourage anyone who gets a chance to do that to do it.
1: And and I will tell you that part of the way that we give back is that we have educators from all over Birmingham that want to come see us. And so I really try to give them the space and the time and they tell me what they really want to see. And I love the fact that our faculty is really willing to be able to say, hey, yeah, this is a great day and I'll be happy to share what I know and they can come observe. Again, um, we're not going to always do it you know, perfectly, but hopefully that we're learning. And I think that's the end. You might have
0: a whole lot of people sign up to come and visit. Fine, that's good. You know, I'm wondering about the type of communication and relationship your school and teachers have with parents. I feel like that you've done a lot to empower parents with the knowledge of what their children need and, and also their progress. Tell us how you've gone about that.
1: So I will tell you, I have a professional mentor and I'm very honored to have him. He's a great human being. They shared with me a couple of weeks ago, it was a great insight and I hadn't really thought about it. He said, Laura, you are honored and gifted with the opportunity to serve the most precious thing that a parent ever has. Okay, so just think about that for a minute. I think sometimes as educators, we forget that. Not only that, but our students are not many times, again, although they may have a learning disability, you and I know that kids, that parents struggle with that diagnosis. And so it's not the dream per se that they may have thought that it was going to walk, right? And so not only that, but then you've got that grief and that angst that parents are working through. And so as we we started our new faculty professional development this morning, I said, I want you to be in that space for a minute, to be in that space in which you are so vulnerable that you're dropping off the most precious thing that you know in this world to a group of individuals that you have to trust every day, that they're going to make the biggest impact in that student's life. Okay. A positive impact. Right. And so I say to them every day or whenever we get together is reminding them of that there's, you're going to make mistakes, but own those mistakes and try not to make them again, but being honest and vulnerable with those parents and saying, okay, so if a parent writes and is angry, I want you to sit down and say, this is not really typically directed at me. Many times it's just at the situation and, and they don't know how to control that. And I think for my own sense, having been in that space as a parent, And knowing what that feels like, and certainly I have not always been as kind as I should have been with educators, and being able to step back and say, that's really about my stuff and not about them, and and knowing that there's people here to support them as they walk through that journey. I think, again, since I am a former parent, you know, two of my kids graduated from Spring Valley, and that I understand that, and having a child that has multiple disabilities that will never have any of these opportunities, hopefully, gives me a different perspective. I think the one thing that I try to tell parents is I wish I could tell you that I could cure it, okay? And unfortunately, there's there's no way to cure it. We can certainly make it better, but it's a learning disability, right? So that means anytime that the student is in a learning atmosphere, that means elementary, middle, high school, college, graduate school, medical school, law school, which we've had kids do all of those wonderful things. When they're in that environment, they're going to struggle. That doesn't mean that they're not gonna do as well as they possibly can, but it's not going to necessarily always be easy. And so I think given the right intervention that we can certainly make it easier for that student to gain information and to access information and to become better readers and writers and be able to do math more proficiently. However, but when they're in that area, that's going to be a struggle. Because I think when they come to Spring Valley, sometimes parents will come in and they'll be like, whoo, which they should be. Thank goodness, I don't have to worry as much. But when they leave and go to college, I try to remember and remind parents, they're going out on their own. They're totally individuals, independent and individuals now that have to be in charge of their educational experience. It's going to be hard. There's going to be hard days.
0: I used to feel like that when we would sit down with a parent in an eligibility meeting and place that child in, in special education. And that parent would think, all right, now it's going to be so easy. And I just would always think, oh, it's, I wish it was. I wish that there was yeah an easy fix for this but unfortunately that is not what those challenges you know equate to in students lives
1: and i think again remembering that you know And the the difference is in public school, again, that typically you have a new case manager every year. And so you've got to get used to that. I do feel like that's certainly easier at Spring Valley. We don't have case managers, but you know, the whole faculty, again, we have social workers that, you know, make sure that, you know, the um, social emotional needs are met. Uh, Every single student gets the accommodations that they need based on their learning disability. But I think, again, I, I really want people to be in a space in which, Recognizing that a lot of the times when people get upset, it's really not typically about that teacher. It's really about their own guilt and struggle and how they best address this.
0: Absolutely. But you know, one of the things that I figured out as an elementary principal is we, and I will include myself in that, place so much emphasis on our children's success because we see it as a reflection of ourselves. Amen. And so I would see people in the grocery store, a lot of times I wouldn't know who they were, but they would. Run into someone, and they they would ask about their children, and the person would say, "Oh, they're doing great. They're making A's and B's." And so, really, it's like this social thing, totally. uh, you know, in which we have equated our children's success with ours, and and making an A and a B is the definition of success. And when, a good parenting,
1: right? Yes, we have, we have uh, yeah. good al- offspring.
0: Yes, absolutely. And you know what we sometimes no as you know grades were overinflated and that you know there's so many so many things and so I, I often when I'm observing that just in a random environment I'm just thinking I wish I knew that that child was going to be okay because making A's and B's is no guarantee that that they're going to be successful uh, I wish for that child that they're talking about like well I hope that they are happy, Happy. successful because that's what we want for all kids. So, you
1: know, I think the one thing is for John and I will tell you the hardest thing. And I think God did this. I'm going to be honest. We were so driven. Both of us are academically and, you know, occupationally driven. And they gave it, he gave me an, an incredible son that can't do any of those things. And it has made me step back and say, what is really important in life? Amen. Because when you look at Facebook and you see all these kids going to grad school and all these wonderful things, and Nick will never do any of this. And so I think for me, it has changed my entire outlook on what these kids can do because they can do incredible things um, and valuing them for so many more things than an A or B.
0: Yes. And, you know, the next thing I was wanting to talk to you about was just there is this idea that, you know, students who have learning disabilities aren't going to be successful in school, not going to college, not have these great lives, you know, and I number one think if we can get the right instruction and right environment for kids, they have a much easier time accomplishing those things. So I I
1: totally agree. I totally agree.
0: So tell us some of the things that students from Spring Valley have been able to accomplish just as a reminder of all of the things that students with learning disabilities can accomplish?
1: I think the one thing is that if a student really wants to go to college, we're going to prepare them at Spring Valley. So again, that's typically determined early on in their high school career. Um, We use a dual enrollment program out of Landmark College um, because it is specifically designed for kids with LD. And so it's an online dual enrollment program in which we start our junior and senior years and we have kids taking one or two classes. And so we've had kids that have graduated with 12 credit hours that they transfer right into college. Um, And those kids, I will tell you, just from our data that we collect as we do with everything, typically do the best in college because they're ready to go. They've learned all the aspects of, I've got to turn the assignment in late. There is no late work. I mean, I can't turn it in late again. So all those things, the nuances of college are really I feel like well taught explicitly before they leave here. Now, certainly I don't want it co- kids to have to go to college if they don't want to go. And so we have some great relationships with some area uh trade schools and we've had kids graduate with you know some some electrical experience and then gone into an apprenticeship for to become an electrician, to become HVAC, to do carpentry. We also have Again, kids that have gone into culinary, uh, kids that have chosen to go do, to go work. In fact, we have a student that graduated last year. I think he's working at a movie theater right now, but he wants to come back and teach drumming. And he's a really gifted drummer. And so he'll come back and do some drumming circles with our lower school and then teach after school drumming lessons. And so, again, hopefully the goal is to be able to teach. We actually have some that have gone into wanted to be teachers. We have one that has it, that's actually in a neurosurgery residency program that graduated several years ago. And my own daughter is actually going into nursing, which she's real excited about. My son, who graduated from here, does a YouTube channel on zoos. So, and but the neatest thing, I think this is a great little story which I, I need to share. Um, I have a student that was here since third grade, and and um, he loved Michigan State. So every year we'd have this ongoing banter because I went to the University of Michigan. And he would say, Go green. I'd say, Go blue. And then during football season, as you can imagine, there was lots of angst. So he came to me his final year at Spring Valley and he said, I really want to apply to the University of Michigan. I thought, You, yeah, okay, you're pulling my leg. There's no way. So he applies. I write his recommendation. He does a great job of writing an essay about his own struggles, learning struggles, personal struggles. And lo and behold, I'm sitting in my living room in this past March and I get a text message that he got into the University of Michigan. Again, a school that has an admission rate of less than 10% from a small LD school in Alabama. Again, that is incredible. And that is hopefully what I want people to hear is that, again, you can do anything. These students can do anything that they wanna do.
0: Yeah, and success is, is not determined by whether you go to college Success is determined nope. by living your best life it's, your exactly.
1: best potential. and being content. I think sometimes we forget that we push our kids so much academically again, that sometimes we have kids that are very mentally ill or struggling, you know, emotionally and socially that are miserable. And that's not what I want. You know, I really, you know, we do have a college and career counselor, Dr. Sandra Foster, who's also our wellness director, Um, again, to really try to, you know, serve these kids and prepare them. And how do you go into college and making sure that you have all the things that you need? And if you're going to go do a trade, or if you want to go do firefighting, we have another student um, that that does firefighting. The other amazing thing is we've had four Eagle Scouts that have graduated from Spring Valley that have done projects here. So again, it's not just academics.
0: No, and we need all of those people in the world. We need Amen. firefighters and we need electricians and we need all of them. And so, and they will probably make more money than many of us with degrees. So yeah. it, I hopefully
1: guess. they'll, they'll be content in what they're doing.
0: Yes, that is, that is always our goal. Laura, I want to thank you so much for being with me today. It's always inspiring to talk to you. And I hope that many people will go check out the school and the work that you're doing with students go visit her. We didn't even get to talk about some of the other fabulous things like the Hetty Johnson
1: Institute. Institute. Um, And we have incredible athletics that we're growing. And again, um, I'm very honored by everyone that works here. Above all, I want to make sure people know that it's not about me. It's about a community of people that have come together to make it an incredible environment. Above all, I thank you for for inviting me. I'm honored and, and it's been a great pleasure.
0: Absolutely. Join us again for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Networks podcast.